I'm Heather. After many wasted years trying outdated approaches to my daughter's addiction that felt wrong to me, harmed our relationship, and didn't help my daughter, I finally found an effective evidence-based approach that repaired my relationship with her, helped me create my own peace of mind, and made me an ally in my daughter's recovery. I teach you a loving and compassionate approach to help you encourage change and create connection. Addiction impacts the entire family system. Family recovery is the answer. There are a few defining moments in my road to my own recovery and repairing my relationship with my daughter. When I found the book Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change, it was one of those defining moments. That book was the first thing I found specifically about addiction that helped me. Before that, I've been working with a coach and gone through coach training, but those things were all focused on me. I wasn't learning more about addiction. I hadn't found the resource there that I was looking for yet. Once I found the Beyond Addiction book, I was able to lean into repairing my relationship with Helena, build a strong belief foundation about addiction that served me, and I was able to create strategies that worked for me and Helena. It got me out of that rigid black and white thinking about addiction and got me into the gray area where all the infinite possibilities are. And as I think back to that time where I was making these huge changes, I am so grateful for the impact that this book has had on my life and the impact that it had on my daughter's life, especially since my time with her was cut so short. I read the book, but it changed her life too. I mean, really think about that. I read that book, but it changed her life. We really do have so much more power than we realize. We can change our experience of our kids' addiction through focus on our own healing and recovery, but we can also take actions that create an environment that make it easier for our kids to find their own healing and recovery. This book contributed to me creating a beautiful, loving relationship with my daughter for the last years of her life. I can't emphasize enough how important your work on yourself is and how grateful you will be that you did it as you look back at the changes you've made and how far you've come. The book Beyond Addiction's four authors work for the Center for Motivation and Change. Their approach to treating substance abuse involves evidence-based treatments that include the whole family. They conduct workshops and training in CRAFT, which is community reinforcement and family training. So buy the book, read it, embody it, let it lead you to become the person you've been looking for to help you. I'll be putting some links to CMC and other resources in the show notes. They have some guides and other resources you can download for free, but buy the book so that you can write in it and so you can support them. And like me, I am constantly referring to the book and highlighting in it and writing in it. So I really hope if you haven't read it yet that you do download their other resources. They're amazing. And I hope that you enjoy my interview with one of the authors of the book. 
So I'm so excited about today's episode. Having one of the authors of my favorite book, Beyond Addiction, How Science and Kindness Help People Change on the podcast today really has me full of gratitude. And this book was my lighthouse when it came to dealing with my daughter's addiction and really finally forming a foundation of a belief system that served me in how I approach supporting her in my relationship with her. So I'm so excited that we get to share this information with the audience today. And Nicole, I just want to thank you for generously, you know, giving us your time today to do this interview. And can you go ahead and introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for that. That's so lovely to hear about the role of that book for you, because boy, it turns out writing a book is an enormous job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I put so much into that book. So that's lovely to hear. Thank you. So my name is Nicole Kosanke. I'm the Director of Family Services at the Center for Motivation and Change in New York, where I've been for almost 20 years, I guess. So that's who I am. I do a lot of work with families and parents in particular who have kids who are teenagers or adults and often dual diagnosed with substance use disorder and something else some other psychiatric conditions. So there's a lot of complicated situations that trying to help families manage taking care of themselves and helping their loved one. Yeah. And that's a lot, right? To do both of those. That's both equally important, but I think sometimes we miss out on how the parents, how we need to take care of ourselves. So how did the book come about? Because This is a collaboration of a few people, it seems like, and it's such a fresh, I think, approach, something that's really needed. So how did you guys end up writing this book together? Yeah, I wrote the book collaboratively with my colleagues, Jeff Foote and Carrie Wilkins, and we got some help from an editor, uh, Stephanie Higgs, and we have been working together at the Center for Motivation and Change for a long time. And actually worked together before CMC got started. So we get along well and we have the same sort of commitment to using strategies as psychologists that are effective in research studies and looking at the whole person in a compassionate and humanistic way. And so There's a lot of that in that book. We came across CRAFT, the Community Reinforcement and Family Training Approach, and we're using those strategies with family members a lot and also finding that the books that had been written on CRAFT thus far weren't always accessible or meeting the needs of the clients that we were seeing and wanting more of a frame around the strategies, like what is motivation? How do you define substance use? What about treatment? What are the options? How about medications? Like that's sort of beyond the scope of craft. And yet it was a lot of the questions that we were answering and sort of work that we were helping people with. So that's why we decided to write Beyond Addiction is because those are the needs we were seeing, but also because as a therapist, you see like one person, two people, five people a day, eight people a day, like 
there's a finite amount of people that you can contact and help. And it became clear that so many people need these strategies. So many people could really benefit from it. And it's not something that people hear about. So it didn't make any sense to us. There is this really effective research proven approach for family members to help and nobody knows about it. So why is that? What can we do about it? How can we get this information into more hands? Yeah, I can't remember how I actually found the book because I had just been Googling and Googling and everything I was finding only really was helpful if your person that was struggling was ready to change, right? There was nothing I could find that told me what to do when my daughter did not want to change at all. And that was left me feeling so empty. So like, this is what I love about it is this is what you do, even if they don't want to change. And having that framework is, I mean, it's a lifeline when you feel like you're drowning, your child is drowning, your family is, I mean, it is a bleak place to be. So you're so right in what you're saying about that. But so before we talk about craft for a minute, I want to just talk about addiction because that's really important to just understand like what's happening in a person's brain and what do they need to do? What needs to change in order for them to move into recovery? Yeah, so what's happening in the brain? I mean, it is such an important question because I think part of how I think about this is to expand sort of out from the specifics of substance use disorders to like, how do we form habits? Like, how does this work in the brain altogether? And I think that's something that in general, we try to help families do because it gives you more empathy if, I think our culture in general, like really stigmatizes substance use disorders. Like, There is such a feeling of like, oh, those people, or I could never be like that, or Bowery people on the Bowery. Like there's some like othering that happens very quickly around substance use. And so there is, I think, real value in thinking about like, okay, so what happens in my brain when I have habits and Maybe they're not such healthy ones. Like, why is that happening? Rather than thinking about like the defective brain of someone who's addicted. So when we think about habits in general and what happens in the brain, we think about pathways in the brain, right? So you think about, okay, everybody's had the experience of being in their car or walking down, walking somewhere and you sort of stop paying attention, you're listening, you're talking to somebody on the phone or whatever. And next thing you know, you're either arrived and you don't remember how you got there, or you arrived at the wrong place because you're used to going to one place and you weren't like really paying attention along the way. And so you just went to that place that you normally go to. And that is habit, right? That's how the brain gets really efficient at helping us do things and not having to like think at every step of the road, you just automate things. And that's what happens with addiction is that, okay, I feel uncomfortable. And before I know it, I have medicated that away. 
with a substance that I have grown accustomed to knowing is going to be effective for alleviating that discomfort. So that's sort of like what the brain does to automate things. And it goes like overboard with substance use because substances are an unnatural way that the brain is flooded by like, wow, that feels amazing. So I'm going to make sure I get that again. And so that pathway in the brain becomes like a super highway. And it's literally, you you know, you talk about the brain, it's, it is pathways, like there's a neuron and it goes here and then it's connected to that. And then there are myelin sheets that protect it from being intruded upon from other signals that might come along the way. So it gets really efficient going in that direction. And it's kind of stubborn to change. It doesn't go anywhere. So that pathway of substance use, when it becomes very well protected and fast, is really stubborn to change. And so you have to build up other pathways. That's the what does it have to do quest part of your question. Like this is unfortunate that we can't just dig up that pathway and get rid of it. At least we don't know how to do that yet. All we know how to do is build new pathways so that I can become more conscious of when I'm uncomfortable and have some skills around managing that as soon as possible so that I don't end up sort of unconsciously going into that negative pathway again. So I can build up other pathways in my brain to have more options for that and make them speedy highways. And by doing it over and over and over again and associating positive things with it so that my whole being is more interested in those other pathways. Yeah, I think what you said about the the stigma that goes with it. And really, we have to see, I like that you, you know, called it a habit, like everybody has unhealthy habits. And I started really comparing a lot of my habits to my daughters. And if I wasn't like ranking them as better or worse, but just seeing them as meeting my needs in a healthy way, or not, then I realized we were so much more similar than when I was just focused on our differences. And so that's what's helped me a lot, like to have more, my beliefs around addiction initially were so painful. For me, believing that it was some kind of failing on my part and on my daughter's part. So seeing it in such a more, just kind of like simplified way really helped me support her better and myself. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so true that, There's a natural impulse as a parent to wonder, like, did I do something wrong or what could I have done differently? And because that's our whole job as parents is to like usher them through life and try and help their path be as less painful and arduous as possible. But actually, that's not the job. (laughs) That's their job. But I think our society has a lot of messages about parents needing to do this and that and all these things that are really kind of misguided. And it's that transition from the child to the adult, too, that is so tricky and I think not well enunciated in our culture in general. But this piece that you're mentioning about 
how it is that we can really identify with somebody who is struggling and making these choices that seem from the outside just completely insane, like so irrational and self-destructive and other destructive and hurtful. Like, how is it that these choices are being made? And when you identify what the need is, what the wish is, then you can empathize, right? Then you can think, realize, oh, she just wants to breathe. She just wants to feel an easy breath. And that wish, what could be more human? Like that is just such an understandable need, wish, desire. All of us can identify with that. And then you really break down those barriers of understanding. Yes, there are consequences that are unintended, but that wish, that urge is really understandable. Yeah. And it makes compassion so much easier. Yeah. So I'm going to share a quick summary about CRAFT and then ask you a question about that. So CRAFT stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. It's designed to empower families. It teaches them how to take control of their lives and change their interactions with their substance user to promote positive behavioral change. And the three goals are one, to teach you skills to take care of yourself, two, teach skills to help your loved one change, and three, reduce substance use with or without treatment. It's behavioral in that it employs strategies for real-world observable change. It's motivational, drawing its strength from collaboration and kindness rather than confrontation and conflict. So I'm curious, like what people struggle with the most when they're trying to implement craft. Like for me, I listened to the book and then I bought it and then and I read it again. And now I still look at it constantly. Like the I'm surprised it looks as good as it does. It's helped it held up really well for as often as I use it. But for me, it was the mindset shift of like, no, but there's no answer. Like, you know, you're not going to just tell me this is what you do when this happens. And this is what you do when that happens. For me, it was figuring out a new belief system. But what do you find that most people struggle with the most to implement it? I think that for parents in particular, the self-care piece, self-compassion is really tough because of the things that we've been discussing thus far, you know, that there is a real pressure on parents, you know, this phrase, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child, like, that is just a killer. That's just a killer. Like, what does that mean that you, that your source of happiness is in someone else's hands? Like, that is really painful. And I think a lot of people identify with that. And so a lot of the parents that I meet with will essentially tell me like, yeah, yeah, I know how to take care of myself. Like I'll get there. Just help me fix my kid. And then I'll figure that out. Like that's on the back burner. This is the fire in the house. We have to put that out and then I will deal with like going to the doctor or talking to a friend or walking around the block or something like the any attention to like what they how they're managing things is really feels secondary 
and it isn't secondary. It, I think it's part of the problem that our society has in general sometimes of like either or, like I'm either really mad at my kid or I love them. I'm like either going to pay attention to their needs or mine. And actually these things all need to be happening at the same time. Like, yes, you do need to recognize that you're angry and it's a totally valid feeling to have. And your love for them hasn't gone anywhere in that process and your compassion and your desire to help. And so those two things can happen at the same time. I am feeling infuriated and I may not be able to talk to you right now, but I love you. I'm glad you're okay. Let's talk after dinner or tomorrow morning or whatever. That is a skill actually, to be able to hold those two things at the same time and practice that skill of acknowledging those things are coexisting. Yeah. And I don't know if there's like a real name for that, but I started calling it 3D emotion. Like, because I didn't know what I was developing, but I started noticing like, I can be sad about what my daughter is experiencing But yeah, I can also experience joy because something good is happening in my life at the same time. So I started calling it 3D emotion. Like I'm noticing this ability coming up as I'm practicing all the things that you were talking about, like taking that leap into self-care and taking the microscope off of my daughter, even though it felt totally wrong. But I just had to acknowledge that nothing that I had done until that point worked. So I had to be willing to try anything different. And yeah, is there a name for that? I've always been curious about like that. that. 3D emotion, that sounds good to me. Okay. <laughs> I mean, in DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, they talk about the dialectic, acknowledging that there are multiple feelings that can coexist and not buying into the myth for yourself that only one is happening at the same time because it's just not true. Yeah. And it's something that serves us in every area of our life, like all the way through this process of it enabled me to enjoy my daughter more during the times that she was sober because we had done so much work. And like, when I say enjoy her more, I mean, enjoy her more because she was available to be enjoyed more, not because I had come to the place where I loved and accepted her so much. It didn't matter. She was in active addiction or sobriety. I loved her the same. But when I say enjoyed her more, it was like she was available for more of the kind of relationship I wanted to have with her. And so I was able to just work through the fears as they came up to opening up to her. And because you have to kind of learn to live a different way kind of without them being as available. And then it takes a lot of vulnerability to go back into having a really open relationship with them in sobriety. So that ability to experience all the full spectrum of emotions and multiple emotions at the same time served me. And now it's serving me in dealing with grief and experiencing the grief for her, but also experiencing joy and the other emotions that are appropriate for the other things that I am experiencing in my life too. It helped me to build that multiple dimensions of who I am, not just a mom defined by one thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that, well, so let's move on to enabling because I think that that's so, it's such a roadblock and it brings up so much fear 
you know, I know that like a lot of my clients get stuck there and I'm like, just like throw that word out of your vocabulary because it makes us feel like everything that we're doing is wrong. So is there like a better word for that or maybe just a healthier way to look at it? Like, how do you look at it? Yeah, I mean... I tell people that I just don't use that word because it's not possible in our society to use that word, even if we redefine it. Because right now, what it means is I'm accusing someone of something or accusing myself of something. It's really a condemnation, that word. And so I just don't use it. But technically speaking, right? Enabling is doing something that promotes or encourages substance use. So if you are enabling positive things, I'm enabling exercise, I'm enabling healthy eating, I'm enabling, we don't say it that way, but technically that should be the meaning. But in our lingo, like enabling is really encouraging or promoting or increasing the likelihood that someone is going to use drugs or drink. So if you, we don't live in a world that's black and white and simple, but if we did and you could sort of divide it up, like these are actions that really encourage substance use and these are actions that really encourage healthier behaviors and do not encourage substance use, then that would be fine. And then we could label those enabling behaviors and label all of these things, either enabling positive behaviors or enabling or just healthy, positive reinforcement, right? But in the real world, those sort of categories get really messy. Okay, so if I give my kid, I don't know, money for lunch and they use it for drugs, Is that enabling? Well, it wasn't when I gave them the money, but if I do it over and over again, I realize this is what's happening, then I can identify, okay, that's not a helping behavior for me to give them that money. I'm going to figure out a different thing that is more likely to encourage the healthy way of eating lunch and set up a plan with the school or a way for them to use a credit card that only allows them to buy certain things with it. Can kids get around that? Definitely. So we just like go into the cascade of how confusing and complicated this gets. But I agree with you 100% that the word is so condemning that it's really not possible to use it without like that corrosive internal experience, which is so unhelpful for everyone involved. It's just awful. And people hurl it as accusations, even from professionals. Like, I'm not happy to say that, but that's true. I mean, my field is full of people that will tell family members that they're being enabling. And the real tragedy there is that they're not being told what to do. Like it's very easy to like point fingers, but let's encourage people on what to do differently. So that's a real, real lacking place in the field, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then 
I asked some parents in my group, like what some questions were they wanted me to ask. And one of them was like about like, what do I do when it comes to paying rent? And I want to pay directly to the landlord because I don't want my child to be homeless. Or I want to keep helping my child, but they're not able to really string together much sobriety. But again, I don't want them to be... I don't think that them being homeless is the answer either. So money specifically is a really tough one, especially in both of these cases, they were talking about paying directly to the landlord. Like where, Mm -hmm. what's a a good way to approach that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense that there is what I call a seat, a floor, like a floor and a ceiling to the support that you might offer a kid. Like many people feel that way. Like, okay, might my child relapse or start using in this apartment that I'm paying for? Yes, but I'm willing to pay for that anyway because I need them to have a floor to sleep on. I need them to have shelter at very least. So I, yes, I am going to do that. If I come over and fill their fridge once a week and their friends come over and pay them money for the food that's in there and go eat it. And now my kid has money to buy drugs with. Am I going to stop bringing the food over there? Probably not because I want them to have food to eat. And probably some of that food is going down their gullet. So there's a sort of a balancing act to figure out like, okay, pros and cons of this. Like, what are the consequences if I don't give this? The other piece is that there's so much in the delivery of this, right? Like, so there's the concrete question of like, do I give money to the landlord so that my kid has somewhere to sleep? And then there is the question of like, how do I have that conversation with my kid? And how do I convey the support that I am giving financially? And what else is happening in the relationship? If that's all I'm giving, if that's, if we have no contact whatsoever, then it does feel very weighty, this decision. But if there's many other things going on, then it has begins to feel like part of a fabric, right? And so I think that's the piece that I encourage people to think about is like, okay, there are a lot of different ways to look at this elephant. And how is it that we can like pay attention to this side And do a little bit over here and make sure we're doing some positive reinforcement of healthy behaviors, setting limits here, taking care of ourselves, like do a little bit of all these pieces and not expect too much of any one piece. So I'm paying the rent now. I might not pay it next month because I learned something that is so upsetting that I can't support that anymore. The drug dealer moved in. I don't know. There are certainly limits, right? So there's less pressure on any one decision, I think, when you think from a multiple perspective of like the different efforts that you can be putting into the situation. Yeah. And I think that also what that brought up for me listening to what you were saying was that we need to be as parents really clear about what we're giving and why. And knowing that part of the reason we're doing it is for our own comfort too. So that, because a lot of times we give because we want relief, but then we feel used. 
So we have to be really clear what we expect in return for what we're giving and why we're doing it. And that a lot of times we are doing it for ourselves as much as that we're doing it for them so that we aren't holding it over their head and damaging the relationship when we're really trying to do something healthy. And the other thing that came up is for me when you were saying that was the act of always feeding my daughter and giving like giving her rides when it was convenient for me to do that helped me to build a relationship where I was able to move into a place of having some influence, right? I didn't have control. Like I want to get rid of that. (laughs) But I had some influence. She would at least ask me my opinion about things that opened the door for us to have conversations. So I think that, like you said, I like the way you said that about looking at the whole big picture, not just that one piece of paying the rent, but the whole piece of what that's doing for them. I think that we forget that sometimes we get so fearful and caught in the each little detail that we forget to kind of zoom out and look at the big picture. I love that because those moments of doing what you can, not if it's going to break the bank, not if it's going to make you late to work, not if it's going to like really tie you in knots, but doing what you can when you can do it and noticing and really taking seriously the influence that you can have And your kid asking you questions is a great example of like that might easily come in and out of your awareness of having an influence, but it's a clear influence. Asking a question means that she values your opinion. She wants a relationship. She's willing to engage. Like all of those things are happening and they're being fed by your willingness and availability to be present. And that is actually a pretty big deal. You could miss it easily if you are so resentful that you're driving her somewhere, right? Because you'd be walled off and irritable and angry and maybe late somewhere and resentful. That's not a good place to do those things from. If you can be available to having that influence and noticing it when it happens, great. But if it's going to really put you off and you're not going to be available for that anyways, then you shouldn't be doing them. You know, it's not going to have the desired effect. Yeah. And that goes back to what you said in the very beginning about taking care of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then we know our limits a lot better. Yeah. Because people swing from one end to the other when it comes to like setting limits, right? So if you are, giving, 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 then you end up being resentful and you slam down on the other side, right? Like, screw this, never mind. you're cut off. I'm not talking to you again. And then regret, regret and moving back and forth. And so when you're at those ends of the continuum, it's very clear that it's not right. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's not right. It's not right to be giving giving, giving, giving without getting anything in return. And it's also not right to completely shut off. Like in your bones, you know, it's not right. And recognizing that before you get to those extremes will allow you the sort of flexibility to stay sort of more towards the center rather than like snapping back towards the other end, which is natural. If you 
giving too much, you're not setting any limits, you're at some point going to snap. And that is not a place you want to be like bouncing from one extreme to the other. You really want to try and pull yourself in. And doing that means really staying attuned to your own needs, your own reality. Like I can't do this today because I don't have the resources internally. Tomorrow, let's talk about it tomorrow because maybe yeah. today I can't do it. You, you can only say that in sort of kind, compassionate, but clear way if you really know that's true. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because that does change in the beginning for me when I was, when I needed my daughter to change so that I could be okay. And when I was confused and overwhelmed, I was swinging from one extreme to the other, always wanting to show up differently, always wanting to have more love and compassion, but always ending up not liking my reaction because I would get so overwhelmed and because I wasn't taking care of myself. And I was always at the end of my rope or just by, you know, near it. So once I was taking care of myself, I was really able to regulate myself. Here, I'm wanting my daughter to regulate, right? But I'm not even able to regulate myself. So how is my 14-year-old at the time supposed to be able to figure that out on her own. And that really gave me some compassion too. When I was like, oh, I'm not even doing what I want her to do. Mm -hmm. That's a great observation. And so hard to acknowledge that as a parent, because there are so many things you're doing really well and that you're juggling and you've got like all these balls in the air that you're doing really well with to be able to really acknowledge and there's this piece I'm really struggling with and that gives me compassion for my kid. Like, let me try and be the role model I want to be with her. And that will allow me to be a, a better problem solver, you know, more creative because I'll just have more resources available to me. Yeah, I love that. So something else that somebody asked me about was relapse being a part of recovery. And I hear on one hand where that's comforting because it happens so often, but then on the other hand, like, is that really a part of recovery? Like, what is the science behind that? Is relapse really a part of recovery? Well, as with many things, substance use disorders kind of exist on a curve, right? So you have like most people and then you have the, the normal curve kind of this like a bell. And then towards the end, you have like these outliers. And unfortunately, most of the research that has been done on substance use disorders and people in treatment is on that tail end of people who really have struggled and have gone in and out of recovery and had lots of remitting, relapse remitting experiences with their substance use. So we don't really have a great answer to that question because so much of the research has been studied on folks who have kind of the most extreme version of these problems. However, if we step back from substance use again and think about habits in general, if you've ever tried to make a big change, as we all have, you'll notice that you go back and forth. You have some motivation and then you have less motivation and then you do really well and then not so well. And then 
you have some, you know, momentum around like, no, this is really better in this direction. And then something unforeseen happens or, you know, some emotional. So there are, it's really understandable that people's motivation shifts. So when do we mark the beginning and where do we mark the end? So if people naturally have this kind of shifting motivation with ambivalence and lack of clarity about what should happen, if we start looking at that behavior in the very beginning of that ambivalence and noticing that, then there's going to be a lot of variability, a lot of relapsing or lapsing or back and forth kinds of behavior that we're going to notice before we get to anything like abstinence or harm reduction or moderation. Like there's going to be a lot of mess. So it kind of depends on where you decide to focus your attention. But I would say that once you have gotten to a place of like really consistent use and then stopped, like if we're just looking at people that have been using regularly and then are in a period of abstinence, most people have some experience of a slip, but not all people. And this is part of the sort of tricky thing about statistics. Well, 20% of people that have developed substance use disorder are able to moderate. That's a number from some research. Well, that's not a bad number. Like if you really want to moderate, like I can imagine that feels like a pretty big number, but 80 is a much bigger number. (laughs) So somebody has to be those 20 people out of 100. And is it possible? Yes, it's possible to moderate. But what are the biggest chances? The biggest chances are it's going to be really hard. Now we have a society which is legalizing one substance and not another or legalizing marijuana and alcohol. Even alcohol is like the worst drug we have available, but it's legal. Has that, I mean, it gets very complicated. So the picture around like, okay, I'm going to be absent from this, but I'm going to keep using that is very, very confusing and hard to track. Like, okay, so how am I? even defining abstinence now, if this is the state of the world. So I think the the thing to remember about abstinence and relapse and lapsing is that it is not the end of the world. It is a learning experience. And anytime you make a big change in your life, you go back and forth. It is normal. Ambivalence is normal. It is to be expected. It is not a road sign that you're in a different country. It is to be expected. It's just part of the journey. And when you have ambivalence, if you then use in response, that's a lapse. And if you keep doing that, that's a relapse. And at any moment, you can turn back around. But ideally, you have learned something from that experience. You have learned what made you vulnerable to that ambivalence, what made you vulnerable to that action, and that takes you into a more sustainable path down the road. 
Yeah. I always like to think about dieting because what most people diet, like how sure. often, mm-hmm. you know, it's like a choice you make all day, every day. Mm-hmm. When you think about our kids making that choice all day, every day, and then it does seem a little bit easier to understand why it's such a struggle for them. But like you said, I do think about my daughter looking back, like the first time she went to rehab she really, really struggled. And then she was barely able to stay abstinent. And then the second time, totally different experience. And then she was willing to go to sober living. And so she was always building on and learning, like you said. But one thing she still just struggled with, though, every day, I think that she had, it had been like a year and a half, and she was still struggling with the uh, really wanting to live and loving life and knowing that she needed to love herself, but still struggling with cravings. And, you know, I wanted to talk about fentanyl a little bit because now that it's like the number one killer of people ages 18 to 45. And honestly, the when I knew that my daughter had relapsed, I wasn't even thinking about it. My main fear when I when we were talking about it was that she would just say, F it and give up. And, but I had this false sense of security because the way she had used was a real harm reduction. She had only snorted it rather than injecting it like she used to. And that told me like, okay, she just needed some relief and she's going to go back to abstinence again because it's so much harder to get off the needle. And so I knew that since she was snorting it, that that was her thought process and we had a plan in place. But she, bought from somebody that she didn't know and got fentanyl instead of heroin and died as soon as she used it. And so I think it's important for us to take that into consideration, but we also can't live in fear of it. But is there anything that we should do differently in light of that? Painful, so painful. I mean, it's First of all, I'm so sorry for your loss, of course, and horrible, horrible experience as a parent, just awful, especially in the journey that you're describing. This is so painful. And in your right, it's just ubiquitous. It's, it's so frightening how, and it's the drug supply in general. It's not even just heroin. The pressed pills, people feel like, oh, I... I'm safer because this is a pill. It came from a pharmacy. Well, no, lots of people can press pills. You know, it doesn't have to be from a pharmacy. And that's got fentanyl in the system and cocaine has fentanyl in the system. So it's really kind of everywhere. You cannot feel certain that you have, you don't have something in your supply. So there are test strips available. They are also not like foolproof, but they're available. They give you some amount of knowledge about what's in your drug supply. So that's a true harm reduction strategy, right? Is to test your drugs and see if they, there's like a drugs party safe or something. There's a couple different websites that help people to have these test strips and be able to test their drug supply. Again, they're not foolproof, but that's one thing to consider. Obviously, 
having naloxone around is a good idea. I encourage, they say that if you are overdosing with fentanyl, that you often need two shots of it. So that's good to know as a family member to just have those around, have them in your kid's purse, in the car, at their friend's house. It really communicates something serious. Like Mm -hmm. nobody has a kitchen without a fire extinguisher in it. It's a law. This is the deal. If you're going to cook with fire, you have to have this thing in case something bad happens. I know that you're not done using. And so this is in your closet, two of them. And I'm going to resupply them whenever you need them, because this is how serious it is. You're taking your life into your hands. So it is a really serious issue. How do we live with fear and move forward? I mean, that is the perennial question. I mean, it's sort of what we were talking about before. Like, how do you have anger and still love them? How do you treat people with kindness, but also feel hurt by them? Like, these are the things that we as humans have to continue to live with. I mean, I mean, the last couple of years is a perfect example of sort of existential crisis. Like, Without knowing, you know, what is around the corner, how do we move forward anyway? Do we keep making plans for the future, even though I don't know that it's going to look the way I think it is, Mm. I guess, but it's hard sometimes. And so really checking in with yourself about that. There are times when the community gets alerts. There's more fentanyl on the streets right now. That's something that people can know about and you can share that information. That might be a time that you would pay more attention to that fear. Other times you might recognize like, I need to move forward, but it's a really important individualized decision about how you move forward. But it's not different from the one that people need to deal with. It's just more sort of pronounced, right? It's more extreme. Heroin is dangerous. Alcohol is dangerous. Fentanyl is dangerous faster, but it's all dangerous. There is always a chance, but it's sort of like people will often feel like, well, I have to keep them at home because what if they overdose somewhere else? Being at home doesn't keep them from overdosing like it actually doesn't so that's not the sort of end-all be-all of safety is keeping them near you bad things happen whether they're near you or they're not near you so really kind of examining what you're afraid of and what you think is keeping you safe and being honest about that is I think really important and tricky and changes with time and behavior and what's happening in the community. Yeah. And it is really important to just address that there is always danger and we can't just focus on that. So again, it just goes back to that well-managed, well-rounded approach of, I love the idea of test strips, but also remembering that they don't work 100%. 
and being mindful of it, but that we also cannot control if our... I had no control over my daughter using. There was nothing I could have done that would have stopped her from using that day. When they want to use, that's what they're going to do. And so we can't live in... If I was in constant fear, my last interactions with her would have been very different. So I always like to think about that too. I'm grateful that I was in a place of love instead of a place of fear that I had a wonderful last couple of visits and conversations with her. So I appreciate that idea about how to look at it. One last thing I wanted to ask about before we wrap up is choice. And because I think that that's something that a lot of stigma comes from is, is it a choice to use or to use again? Because we think about, we make bad choices all day, every day. But for some (laughs) reason, when it comes to if it's a choice when somebody uses drugs or not, then it gives, you know, opens up all this judgment. So maybe that's not the right question to be asking. But what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's so tricky. I guess I do feel like choice is so, it's really individual choice that is so protected. I keep saying our society, but I think that there's something very put on a pedestal about individual choice as if it were a singular event, as if it were pure in some way. Because I became aware, well, I don't know when, but that I don't have like huge emotional experiences. Like I would have friends when I was a teenager who were like really out there and emotional and big expressions. And I was really drawn to that, but I didn't have like my emotions like go around like this. They're sort of in the middle ground, but there are people that have big emotions. And for them, is it a choice to have those emotions? Is it a choice to express them in that way? Is it a choice when they want to bring themselves a little more comfort and calm? Is it my choice that I have the emotions that I have? And so I just feel like people are so different in their constitution. It's not really fair to say like, well, I never turned to drugs to manage my intense feelings. Well, that wasn't really the same choice as somebody who had bigger feelings, right? Like I didn't have as much to manage at that time. And so I think everybody is in a different situation that is managing different things. So it's not really fair to compare one person's choice to another. Our brains are very different. The extent to which we need relief. I mean, when you talk to somebody who has developed, I don't know if your daughter ever said this, but like a lot of people who have developed issues with heroin or alcohol will say, as soon as I used it, I knew this was it for me. This really was like a key in the lock. Not everybody has that experience when they try opiates. Some people like feel sick and they, they they feel good too, but they don't necessarily have the experience of like, it's a key in the lock. Is that, does that make one person good and bad? Like it's a different brain. It's a different brain. Everyone, if you use Percocet for long enough, will become dependent on it. 
that's just the way the mechanism works in our brain. But the experience of it is really different from person to person. So it just makes the whole question of like choosing something so complicated. Some people are medicating one thing, another person is doing it for increasing joy or connectivity with peers. Somebody else is using it to like manage negative feelings. Those are different scenarios. Those are different choices. And I just think, so when you say like, is it the wrong question? I guess maybe it's the wrong question in my mind. I just think that it's not, it's like the question is too narrow for what we're looking at with these kinds of decisions. I love that. I haven't ever heard it explained quite that way. And I like the way it just shows that we're every person is so different and we cannot even begin to compare our experience to somebody else's. And our brains are all so different. And I, you know, I mean, it's the beauty of what makes humans so amazing is our differences. And so we need to celebrate those instead of and just and really if like for me, I have gratitude that. I never wanted to try those things or that I was afraid to when they were around or maybe so. And that was some of the difference. My daughter just wasn't ever afraid of much. And I had that healthy fear that kept me from doing some of those things. And that was just a difference, even though we have a lot of the same DNA. So I love that explanation that, yeah, that it is just maybe too simple of a question for such a complicated issue. Thank you so much for your time today. The information that you provided, I know it is going to help anybody who listens to this podcast. And I will share links to find out more information about CMC on... It'll be in the show notes. And is there anything important that we missed that we need to hit before we end? Or do you think we got a good... (laughs) I think that was a great sort of cross section of the issues. I mean, there we could probably talk all day long yeah. about this stuff. <laughs> Both of us are so committed and from different angles to the complexity of it all. And I just really appreciate your voice in the world. I'm sure it has a lot of impact for people to really hear your story and your empathy around everyone's perspective is really like clear in the way you're describing it. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about my work, go to heatherrosscoaching.com. If you want to help other parents who are struggling with a child's addiction, you can do it two different ways. First, you can share the podcast with them directly or you can share it on your social media. Second, you can leave a review. Talk to you next week.